interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. To hear this uh, man who is a prolific writer and editor of books, over 40. This man who has uh, impacted the hearts and minds of students at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School as well as scores and hundreds and thousands of individuals all over the world as he goes to speak the gospel of Christ and teach from God's word. This morning, Dr. Carson, it's a privilege to have you back. Come and open up God's word to us. It's my privilege to be with you. I would like to begin by reading some verses from John 6. John 6. If you have a copy of the Bible, perhaps you would turn to that passage. I shall begin at verse 25, John 6, 25 to 59. This takes place just after the feeding of the 5,000 and just after the walk on the water. In the preceding verses, Jesus has come back to the west side of Galilee and the next day the people who had been fed by him on the eastern shores finally catch up with him. We pick up the narrative. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. You are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, What miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. 
and I will raise him up at the last day. At this the Jews began to grumble about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. I tell you the truth, he who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. It's a remarkable fact that um, in the Western world we entertain ideas about food that, um, historically speaking, very few people have entertained and which today would still seem strange to billions of people. Ask any five-year-old, where does food come from? And he or she will inevitably say, from the local co-op or the Sainsbury's or whatever your local grossateria is. Most likely, he or she will not say, from animals and plants, unless you, you find the unlikely child who still, who still lives on a farm. Here's another question. What is the staple diet of the United States? It's just a silly question, isn't it? I mean, anybody who lives here knows enough not to answer it. I suppose if you're a certain age and from a certain class, you might say McDonald's. But um, it's not really a very sophisticated answer. And, and then we're such a mishmash of races and, and, and heritages in any case that we, we, we have such different tastes. Some of us just love curry and something. some of us just can't stand it. Some of us love Tex-Mex and others prefer bland mashed potatoes. And, and, and then some would prefer rice and some would prefer 
perhaps that lovely curried rice, or perhaps the Indian rice, that is the North American Indian rice, with the wild rice, with all those herbs and spices mixed in. Uncle Ben's, I believe it is. I'm not making a small commission. But in many parts of the world, you see, the answer to that sort of question would be univocal. Fish. Or rice. Or yams, depending on where you are. Third question. What happens to our food if there is catastrophic drought or ravaging flood? Hmm, the prices go up. And even there, it depends a bit on where the ravaging flood or the catastrophic drought occur. Early frost in Florida? Ah, bring in some oranges from China. You have to pay for a bit of jet fuel, but that's about it. But in many parts of the world, the answer is, again, univocal. We starve. Fourth question, why do we work? Oh, to get money to buy stuff. Or to pay the mortgage, depending on how old you are or what allowance you get. The answer might be, oh, so we can buy the latest CD or to upgrade my cell phone, to buy a new computer, to pay the outrageous fees at Cornell. I mean, it could be all kinds of things, you see. But in many parts of the world, the answer would be to eat. What's your favorite snack food? Snack food? In many parts of the world, the very idea is uh, unknown. In fact, it might even be judged vaguely obscene. Now, do not misunderstand me. I'm not saying that our ideas about food are morally wrong. They are largely appropriate for the kind of culture we live in. But we must see when we read the Bible that it was first written in a non-industrialized, agrarian society and a relatively poor one. As a result, all of their mental associations for these food terms were different from ours. And I'm not sure that we can understand the flow of the argument unless we think our way into a first century frame of reference. If, if I were simply to say the word bread, what would leap into your mind? I tell you what leaps into my mind. Jewel Osco in Libertyville. Rows and rows and rows of the stuff, and I've got to remember which one to pick up. I, I've always done my, my bit of shopping, but when my wife was so ill a couple of years ago, of course I did everything for a, a year or so while she was, uh, while she was uh, so ill. And um, eventually, I got this down to a fine art. I knew exactly where to go for each aisle. I could get through that thing and buy for the household in about 35 minutes. I would go in at 2 in the morning. It was one of these 24-hour ones, you know. And I would go in there, and the place was empty. I'd go up and down those aisles. And then you know what the rotters did? They revised the store. And then my favorite bread company changed the package. I mean, I was looking for a certain red one, and they changed it. 
you see. Very difficult, very difficult for a bear with a very little brain. You see, the, you see, the associations I have with bread are not exactly what a first century Jew would have in Palestine. In fact, there are three interlocking areas that are presupposed by a first century reader here. First is this, this different set of assumptions looking at bread. The second is the preceding narrative. Jesus has just fed the 5,000. He's multiplied the bread. And in John's Gospel, the miracles are never merely displays of power. They are also signs. They are always call signs. They are significant. That is, they are pointing to something. And what they are pointing to is not simply that Jesus provides enough food for the crowds to eat, but that he is himself the bread provider, the life provider. That is, he is himself the bread from heaven. You, you, you see, there is significance in the miracle. And then the third background that we stumble across as we read the text is, is the familiarity that all of these people have with the Old Testament accounts of God's provision of manna from heaven. When the people of God were in the wilderness and, and were starving, God provided this manna. And these, these three assumptions are in the minds of everybody with whom Jesus interacts and in the minds of the readers as, as they first read this account toward the end of the first century. Now, with that in mind, let us ask what Jesus means when he says, I am the bread from heaven, or I am the bread of God. It will help us, I think, to follow the text in four points. Number one, Jesus is the one who gives God's life to us because he himself is God's manna. Jesus is the one who gives God's life to us because he himself is God's manna. Pick up at verse 25. The crowds have come around the north end of Lake Galilee, crossing at the fords, and have met him on the other side. And they asked, when did you get here? They had seen him escape farther east into the mountains. They had not seen him come across, and they do not know quite how he had managed to escape their grasp. After all, a little earlier, the day before, they were trying to make him king. Chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. You see, in the first century, an average wage earner spent 80% of his or her income just feeding the family. So now if you find somebody who, who, who can actually provide you miraculously with all of your food every day, you've just had an 80% hike. Does that ever increase your disposable income? See? And now if this chap can do it for 5000 why can't he do it for the whole nation? This is a jolly good Messiah, this one. We'll keep him. We'll make him king, you see? But that means that they don't understand what he has come to do or why he has come. So they're looking for him. And Jesus answered, penetrating through the superficiality of the question. They're not really interested in when he got there. I tell you the truth, verse 26. You are looking for me not because you saw the miraculous signs. Well, of course, in one sense they did. But that's not really why they're looking for him. 
but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. That is, you were satisfied, you saw what this does to your disposable income, you're not really looking for me because of who I am. You don't have my agenda. You think, this is a great deal. But I'm telling you, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Supposing you increase your income 80%, or you double it, will that give you eternal life? Does not Jesus say elsewhere, what shall it profit a person if he or she gains the whole world and loses their own soul? What shall you give in exchange for your soul? What shall you say before the judgment seat of God on the last day? Boy, did I ever go up in my company really fast. You should have seen how quickly I was promoted in academic work, too. Until eventually I was full professor and had you know, a reasonable salary. Not as good as I would have had in industry, but not bad. And then besides those technical publications, I managed to do some pop ones, too. And one of those really took off. And, you know, my, my family was quite comfortable. My, will God be impressed. You see, on an eternal scale, that sort of way of reckoning is so stupid, isn't it? And yet it's what we do all the time. We gravitate toward our moment. I recall a few years ago leading an evangelistic Bible study in the AT&T research labs in Naperville near Chicago. A friend of mine was, uh, was involved in one of the research units. Um, in fact, it was the research unit working on electronic switches. 37 grown-ups working on switches, all with PhDs. I was impressed. And, and in fact, the Bell Labs are really quite, quite an interesting place. There, there are several Nobel laureates there, and it's, it's pretty high-powered. And, and of, course, of course, they have all of these, um, these lunch-hour groups with all of this brain power. They're not going to sit around and just eat sandwiches, are they? So, so, so they start clubs doing this and that and the other thing. And, and my friend decided that, uh, that he, would, uh, he would start a, an Explore Christianity Club. And I came in, and for quite a number of weeks, I had 25 minutes to make a little presentation and 20 minutes to, 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 to have a discussion while, while, uh, while they were eating their sandwiches. I suppose I was the garnish to make the sandwiches a little more palatable. And it was an interesting bunch. We had about a dozen that showed up every week. And uh, there was one failed Lutheran and one failed Catholic and I think one failed Baptist. And the rest were, were completely irreligious except for one failed Hindu and uh, one failed Buddhist. They, they were, apart from my friend, largely secular whether they had a religious background or not. And, and you, you begin with basics in that kind of frame, don't you? They didn't know anything about the Bible. And I will not forget soon the day that I was working through parts of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus was saying things like, do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust corrode and where thieves dig through and steal, but lay up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not corrode and where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Both things are said in Scripture. And I was trying to explain this, and it, it was the, the failed Hindu who interrupted me. He didn't want to wait for question time. He said, um, do I understand you correctly? And I, I said, well, what, what do you think I've said? 
He said, well, most of us here, he said, we, we, we get into this place and we know the orientation of our research for the next 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, until we retire. And, and some of us aim to publish in certain areas and some of us have long-range goals and a few of us entertain hopes of, 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 of a Nobel somewhere down the line. And then we expect we'll retire at 65. And then um, we, we might still do a bit of research on the side, some consultancy work perhaps, and publish a bit more and play with our grandchildren. And, and after that, it's a bit vague. But you're saying that we should live now in the light of living forever. Is that what you're saying? I think so, yes. You see, as soon as it's put, it's so obvious, isn't it? If there is a life to come, it is, it is folly beyond words to live only as if this life is all there is. That's what Jesus says. You do not see the significance of the food that I provided yesterday. Do not work for that food. But they hear the word work and they think, all right, whatever we have to do, we'll do. What must we do to do the works that God requires? If we have to have some sort of souped up bread, then, then what are the works and we'll do the works? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. That is, the work of God is the work that God requires, not the work that God does. What God requires is, is that you, you, you trust the one whom he has sent. You abandon yourself to him. You, you are not going to enter into a kind of tit-for-tat relationship with God in, in, which, in which somehow you earn his favor by doing enough good work so that you can get this special bread. At the end of the day, you have to trust the provision that God himself has made. You receive it on faith. It is given by grace. But if Jesus is saying something that sounds as if it's pointing back to himself, to believe in the one he has sent, they ask him, oh, yeah, I said, but if you're going to talk about uh, trusting you or believing you, why should we? What miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? Why should we trust you? What will you do? Well, we'll give you a hint. Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Hint, hint, hint. Did you, see? you did it yesterday. Do it again today. We'll still trust you, provided you do what you did yesterday today. And then we'll trust you tomorrow if you do it again tomorrow. And thus they've got back to what they really want in the first place. Do you see? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven. That's your first mistake. That is, you're focusing much too much on Moses, as if he is the crucial person in the narrative, and it's not Moses, it's God himself. And then second, it's not that manna that is of ultimate significance. That manna merely points to more important manna. It is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. After all, those who ate that manna in the desert died. That, that was not the final manna, it was not the final provision of life. Oh, no, no, no. The bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. In other words, Jesus claims to be the one who is, in fact, the true manna. He mediates God's life to us because he himself is God's manna. Just as in the Old Testament, there are many other pictures that point forward to Jesus. And in John's Gospel, as we have seen in this series, 
Jesus presents himself as the ultimate temple, the ultimate serpent in the wilderness, the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate lamb of God, the ultimate tabernacle. So he is the ultimate manna. And that brings us to the second thing he says. Jesus is the one who gives God's life to us because he does his father's will. He's the one who gives God's life to us because he does his father's will. Verse 34. When Jesus has said, verse 33, the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They still haven't grasped this very clearly. All they know is that it sounds like a very enriched bread. And they say, sir, from now on, give us this bread. Then Jesus declares now unambiguously, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Now, there are two or three things that make this verse extremely important. First of all, this verse mingles the metaphorical and the non-metaphorical so that you begin to penetrate what Jesus is seeing. You penetrate it more by the end of the chapter, as we'll see. But, you see, you don't normally speak of believing in bread. I do a lot of things with bread. I toast it. You know. Sometimes I, I, I eat it untoasted. Sometimes I just put on a, a, a slice of meat from the deli and don't bother putting on any marge. And sometimes I put on marge. This morning in the hotel, I just put on some marge without anything else. I do quite a lot of things. But I never believe. I just don't. But this text says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me. Well, I don't, I don't think of myself as coming to bread. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. You see, there's a mingling of the metaphorical and the non-metaphorical precisely so that you don't get carried away with the metaphor. In the first century, the bread was essential to life. To say that Jesus is the bread of life is saying, in effect, that without him, you die. You don't have the staple. You don't have the base for eternal life. And he is that manna. He is that bread of life. If you want to have eternal life, you must have the staple of eternal life. I am that bread of life. But that doesn't mean that you eat him literally. No, it's just a metaphor. You come to him and you... You trust him. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. There's another misunderstanding that Jesus has picked up in verse 35. You see, they have said in verse 34, from now on, give us this bread. Because they're still thinking in terms of the bread from the miracle of the day before. They want him to do it again, and then again, and then again, and then again, because that's what boosts their income. In those days, workers were paid by the day. If you didn't if you didn't get paid, if you, did have, if you had no reserves, you didn't eat. There was no social insurance system. And, and, so, and, and so your day's wage meant that, that your family ate, do you see? So they wanted this, this food to come day after day after day. From now on, do it. From now on, do it. But Jesus says, he who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. The thought is not unlike that found in chapter 13, verses 9 and 10. The person who has been washed by Jesus does not need another bath, as it were, but only his feet washed. Oh, I know there's a sense in which we come back to Jesus to be cleaned again, or there's a sense in which we come back to Jesus 
to feed our souls again. I know that there's a sense in which that's correct. But there is a fundamental coming to him that meets our needs, deals with our sin, transforms us, gives us that deep satisfaction of knowing the eternal God, our maker and redeemer. Thus, older hymn writers could say, I tried the broken cisterns, Lord, but ah, the waters failed. Even as I stooped to drink, they fled and mocked me as I wailed. Now, none but Christ can satisfy no other name for me. That's what Jesus is saying here. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. And then Jesus still insists that their inability to understand, their inability to believe, is still reprehensible. But that doesn't mean that God's plans fail. No. Verse 37, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. That verse, I think, has sometimes been misunderstood. It is sometimes uh, meant to be some strange mingling of the Calvinist and the Arminian. If you do not understand the historical illusions, don't worry about it. The first part in, in, on this reading means that um, when Jesus says, um, all that the Father gives to me, the Calvinists say, Amen. And, and that when he then adds, uh, uh, and um, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away, the Arminians say, Amen. The, the idea on this view is that um, uh, on, one, on the one hand, God is sovereign and brings some, and on the other, whoever wants to come can come. Well, there may be some truth to that, but it's not what this verse says. The second part is a figure of speech called elicites. You affirm something by denying the opposite. How many people were at the concert last night? Oh, not a few. Not a few? That means quite a lot. In other words, you say quite a lot by denying the opposite, you see. And that's what is being said here. When he says, the one who comes to me, I will never drive away. What's the opposite of drive away? I will keep in. The idea, you see, is, is, is that all that the Father gives to me will come to me. God's not going to be frustrated, finally. And then of all those he gives to me, well, I'm not going to drive them away. I'm going to keep them in. You know how we know? Because, verse 38, I have come down from heaven to do my, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me. But rather, I'll raise them up at the last day. And in case we haven't got it, he repeats it. Verse 40, for my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. In other words, this bread from God infallibly sustains the life of those the Father has given to him. For he does his Father's will. It is no more possible for someone whom the Father has truly given to the Son to fall away than it is for the Son to fail to obey his Father. In fact, that's what it would take. It would take either the inability or the unwillingness of the Son to obey his Father. That's what it would take. For he came down from heaven, he said, to do his Father's will. This bread provides eternal life all the way through to resurrection on the last day. It's not merely some sort of psychological high now, but life now, consummated on the last day, 
in resurrection. So here's the second thing Jesus says then. He is the one who gives God's life to us because he does his father's will. That commitment of the son to do his father's will is precisely what takes him to the cross, is it not? That is why he cries in the garden, not my will, but yours be done. It is precisely this commitment to do what his father gave him to do. Because we're told in John chapter 14, he loves the father and the whole world must learn that he came to do his father's will is precisely what gives us eternal life. In that sense, what gives us eternal life is the deep, deep, deep commitment of the Son of God to obey his Father. It is this intra-Trinitarian love of the Father for the Son and of the Son for the Father that guarantees that when Jesus gives eternal life, that life is eternal. All the way to the resurrection on the last day. That's what qualifies him to be the bread of God. Then third, Jesus is the one who gives God's life to us because he reveals God to us. Verses 41 to 48. At this juncture, you see some people are uh, grumbling a bit. It's a bit much for this chap, Jesus, to say, I came down from heaven. You see, they're not troubled over the bread metaphor so much. They may not understand it, but they're not offended by it. They just don't understand it. What offends them is that he says, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And from their point of view, they think that he arrived simply as the ordinary son of Joseph and Mary. Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How now can he say... I came down from heaven. In other words, it was not popular knowledge what is reported in Matthew and Luke regarding Mary's virginal conception. How do you go and talk about that sort of thing in public? Who's going to believe it in any case? Luke has the most detailed account. He was the doctor. Probably had a wee chat with Mary at some point. And certainly the early Christians knew but in the days of his flesh, Jesus would just seem like one more child, born rather prematurely for this arranged marriage. But that's all. We know his parents. So it's a bit of a stretch now for him to say, I came down from heaven. He's putting on airs. We don't mind if he does the miracles that increase our income. We do mind if he gives himself any airs and stands over against us in judgment or claims of authority. That we find a little hard to swallow. Just as today, there are many people who would like Jesus to provide us all kinds of blessings, but to say and mean it, Jesus is Lord, that's a bit much. I mean, that's interfering with my autonomy, isn't it? God exists to make me happy. God exists to pour out blessings upon me. And if he crosses my will at any point, then he is rather stingy in his blessings anyway. And I will find another God. Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. Now, don't misunderstand this passage. This passage is not saying that they are not morally responsible for their blindness. He's not saying that. He's saying just the reverse. At the end of the day, their blindness is so deep 
Their commitment to self-interest is so profound that the only thing that will break it through is the grace of God. What they really ought to do is commit themselves to him and beg for grace. This is not right. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Yes, everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. So, this means that according to Jesus, God draws people to himself, not with a savage constraint of the rapist, but with the wonderful wooing of a lover. Otherwise put, it is by an insight, a teaching, we're told, they're taught by God, an illumination implanted within the individual in fulfillment of the Old Testament promise from Isaiah 54 that in truth on the last day, under the terms of the new covenant, they will be taught by God. Thus, Jesus is the one who gives God's life to us because he reveals God to us. And last, and perhaps this is the hardest one of all for us to come to terms with. Jesus is the one who gives God's life to us because he gives his life on our behalf. When you read through the language of 51 to 59, doesn't it sound a wee bit over the top? You have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. You do not have eternal life. But if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, I will raise you up at the last day. My flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. How, how are we to understand this? Throughout the history of the church, many people have read this into the Lord's Supper. But I find that a very strange interpretation. After all, at this juncture, the Lord's Supper has not actually been instituted. That came later. Undoubtedly, some people read this into the Lord's Supper, but, but if you give it any sort of credibility for historical verisimilitude, it is, it is in the wrong place to be talking about that. Moreover, whenever the Lord's Supper is mentioned in the New Testament, or any time in the first century and a half of the Christian church, the bread is referred to as the body of Christ, not the flesh of Christ. If, if this language were to refer to the bread that we eat in the Lord's Supper, why isn't body language used instead of flesh language? But if it's not referring to that, it sounds vaguely cannibalistic, doesn't it? It's a bit bad taste, to say the least. Or is it? What are you doing when you go to a McDonald's hamburger and eat a quarter pounder? Well, you're eating dead cow. And dead lettuce. And dead tomato. And you are eating dead peppers. And you are eating dead barley. Everything you're eating there is dead. With the exception of a few minerals like salt, of which there is too much. Everything else you're eating is dead. In fact, it died for you. Either it dies and you live, or it lives and you die. Well, not necessarily that particular hamburger, but you extrapolate that over all food and you see the principle. You see, either this living stuff dies and you live, or it lives and you die. Anybody that's brought up on a farm knows that. 
We don't because this is just stuff that arrives in styrofoam or paper or, or grease or something. Do you see? That's what it arrives in. But in the first century, they understand this. So when Jesus says, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, it becomes an extraordinarily powerful way of saying, do you not understand? Either I die and you live, or I live and you die. Those are the only alternatives. I came to give my life. This becomes this part of a whole stream in John's Gospel which emphasizes Jesus' substitutionary death. In chapter 10, for example, he is the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. He is the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. Does the good shepherd say, here am I, I'll give my life for the sheep? Of course not. A good shepherd might risk his life for the sheep, but a good shepherd doesn't give his life for sheep. Now, that would be stupid beyond words. He wouldn't look after the rest of the sheep for a start. After he's gone, what happens to the rest of the flock? You don't say, I will die instead of this little lamb. You might risk your life as you try to stop the wolf from going after the lamb, but you don't give your life, do you? Except that Jesus pushes the metaphor that far. That is what he does. He gives his life so that the flock can live. And then in the next chapter, Caiaphas is busy saying, oh, it's better for this man to die than the nation live than that he should live. He means it in a politically expedient way. We need to have a substitute sacrifice here. Get rid of Jesus so that we don't have any Roman hordes falling down on us simply because he is starting apparently a revolution and makes things politically dangerous. We'll cook the books as far as justice is concerned. We'll have this sacrifice and we won't lose the nation. John comments. He spoke better than he knew. He was high priest that year, and he did not know that Jesus gave his life not only for the life of the nation, but for the life of his people everywhere. He died that they might live. Thus, when we take the elements of the Lord's Supper, amongst the things we are doing is remembering that Jesus gave his life. That is our bread, and without him we die. Christians have often understood this and sung it well. In an older hymn, Jesus, thou joy of loving hearts, thou fount of life, thou light of men, from the best bliss that earth imparts, we turn unfilled to thee again. And then this, we taste thee, O thou living bread, and long to feed upon thee still. You see, we go back to him again and again and again and understand because of his death on our behalf, we have life. We have his life because he died for us. We drink of thee, the fountainhead, and thirst our souls from thee to fill. Let us pray. O oh Lord God, we so often try to domesticate the Christian religion into some sort of arranged barter system. Help us to see afresh that we have eternal life only because of your gift. To call upon you for grace and forgiveness. To trust him who is the living bread. To recognize afresh that when he died on that Roman cross 2,000 years ago, his death meant our life.
He died just for the unjust to bring us to God. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The enormity of it is past finding out. Grant, Lord God, that we may take of this bread and find in him that perfect satisfaction for the hunger in our souls and trust his promises that on the last day we too will be raised to eternal life and live therefore in the light of eternity through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.